Hello, podcast family and people in podcast land, and welcome back to another episode of the Back Pain Podcast. My name is Rob Bevan, and alongside co-host David Elliott, we produce this show to help you navigate the really super complex world of low back pain. Joining us today is Adam Dobson, specialist back pain physiotherapist from South Tees in the UK, and we're discussing spinal stenosis, a common cause of pain amongst our listeners. Now, on today's episode, you can expect to learn if spinal stenosis is a normal part of aging, why does it cause so much pain in almost 11% of people? Should I push through pain when I feel it? What are my best exercise options? And how many people end up having surgery for this condition? Now, if you are enjoying this podcast, I've got a huge favor to ask. Please share it with someone who needs to hear this information. Post it on Twitter or post it on Instagram. Please tag us at The Back Pain Podcast. We love hearing people telling us that they're enjoying the show. It means the world to us. But that's it from me. I'll leave you to sit back and enjoy today's episode, and we'll catch you on the next one. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, everyone, podcast family and friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Back Pain Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined for the third time, I think this is, by Adam Dobson, specialist Hello. physiotherapist who's coming to talk to us today all about spinal stenosis. Now, Adam has just released a fantastic patient-facing booklet all about spinal stenosis and the top 10 things you should be aware of or the top 10, top 10 things that you should know about spinal stenosis. So we brought him on today to talk all about this. I'm also joined by co-host and also fellow expert, David hello, Elliott. Hello. Perfect. Adam, we'll kick it straight off. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Third time's a charm. Third time's Lovely being. Third time's a... So you're an expert by now, mate. Yeah, apparently so, yeah. I've done a few now. Mainly about 50% is with yourselves, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on. We, we only invite people back when they're really great. So, you know, it's a, it's a testament to you, mate. So, well, let's, let's jump straight into it. So, obviously, you produced the, you know, this booklet. You know, a lot of hard work goes into these, these, these patient-facing um, materials, you know, aiming to educate people and, you know, clear up a lot of myths and misconceptions around certain conditions. And they've done a few on other topics. So, this one's about spinal stenosis. So, kick straight off into it. What is spinal stenosis? Yeah, so I think specifically uh, lumbar spinal stenosis. I think the term spinal stenosis, it kind of covers a lot of different things. So specifically lumbar spinal stenosis. There's two parts to that answer. It's a bit of a tricky one, so I'll I kind of break it down a little bit. The first part, I, I guess we'll use the words themselves. So lumbar refers to the lower back from the bottom of the ribs down to just above your bum. Uh, spinal refers to the spinal column itself, so they're kind of stack of bones. Uh, they create a hollowing that the spinal cord runs down between from your neck all the way down to your bum. Um, towards the bottom of the spine, uh, the spinal cord sends off several smaller nerves called nerve roots. These travel a little bit further down the spinal tunnel, and we'll call it the tunnel from now on, the spinal tunnel, uh, before they travel down into the legs. Okay. Stenosis is Greek for narrowing, so a narrowing of the spinal tunnel, uh, narrowing that may gently crowd or squeeze the lumbar nerve roots. So simply, 
uh, it's a descriptive term for one perspective. It's not necessarily a diagnosis. It's an observation of a naturally maturing spine and age-appropriate change. So one part of the answer is its use as a descriptor of a maturing changes in the spine. So that's the, that's the kind of terminology there. For the second part is when we start to use it as a, a diagnosis, which I think is a little bit different to that. Okay, a set of particular symptoms that reflect an irritation of the nerve roots. So it's not just a descriptive term there, uh, which I think is a bit misleading. Without the clinical presentation, without those characteristic kind of symptoms, uh, it's it's almost kind of saying, well, that 60-year-old person looks 60 on the inside. Okay, so um, we've got to be careful to kind of separate out uh, what scans say and, and how that might relate to a problem that, that a person has. Mm. So that's what a steno- lumbar spinal stenosis is. Uh, what are the symptoms yeah. of this lumbar spinal stenosis, Adam? So, yeah, so when, when we can kind of, uh, we're looking at a person's presentation, we think there may be some lumbar nerve root irritation. Um, there's kind of a, a plethora of different symptoms that people can de- can describe. Aching in the back, the buttocks, the thighs, the calves, heaviness in the legs, weakness in the legs, pins and needles, tingling, sometimes numbness in the legs. The hallmark of these symptoms is that they produce with standing and walking, and eased with sitting and bending the back, uh, usually because the tunnel is bigger when we're bending forward, so there's a bit more space for the nerve roots. Uh, cramping pain in the legs is a quite an under-reported uh, symptom that's very common, cramping in the calves and the thighs at night time. So nighttime pain is a quite a particularly Uh, kind of hallmark symptom so these kind of symptoms they're usually either positionally uh, influenced or exertionally influenced and this is important to the diagnosis so so they'll come on with a certain activity which might be very specific every time or a certain position which you know every time I stand up after four and a half minutes I start to get these symptoms or when I walk for 250 meters I start to get these symptoms you know is there usually a, a very definite or definite kind of distance or onset or can that change yeah yeah i think there'll be a general presentation of um the the patient you know usually the the best accounts are when um we when patients just tell us these symptoms without being prompted you know uh, what what hurts what doesn't hurt what eases your pain and there will be a general sense of you know it, it's worse when i'm out shopping um, or it's I, I can bend my back and I have to lean forward. It's not that patients always make those connections, but I think if they just come naturally in the conversation, it's a little bit more clear. Um, but people often have, you know, mechanical back pain as well. So it, it's not an, it's not like they go immediately off when people sit down. So there'll there'll be softer signs than 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 other kind of claudicant symptoms that we might get into um but it's usually that person's uh they may have difficulty getting out of a chair they may have a sore back as well um but yeah we can kind of draw that out of the conversation mm. so i know in the in, in the document as well and we'll, we'll tag this or we'll, we'll link to the document in the show notes as well um you mentioned talking about a shopping trolley so by that mm. you mean kind of like a tesco's 
you know other supermarkets are available um a shopping cart um <laughs> shopping market uh, you know walking around tesco's you know leaning forward that opens yeah. up the spine so it kind of takes the the, the pressure off it or it reduces symptoms mm. people can usually walk further is that what you mean before the symptoms come on yeah that kind of like i said that positional component to the symptoms where um people will notice that when they lean on the shopping trolley the shopping cart we're getting very american aren't we with that term yeah. the the <laughs> shopping trolley sign as it's sometimes known as uh, patients will feel compelled to lean forwards uh sometimes they're told off for that and they really shouldn't be because uh it can be helpful to to kind of in the moment pain relief so um so patients will often declare that oh we may investigate that a bit further when we get to the kind of the ags and eases what helps and what doesn't help mm. it might be just a weird curiosity that the patient's like you know what i don't really know why but when i'm more leaned forward it seems to be helpful and that's a little mm. bit of a, a light bulb for us in the clinic yeah, it's, it's always, you know, I think we, I remember learning this at university and it was people, it was almost in our, in our textbook, you know, will be eased walking with a shopping trolley. And you can always kind of highlight that and show it to a patient who's just said, funny is when I walk around Tesco's, I don't have any pain. Um, you know, when I do that, or I can walk walk for 25 minutes around Tesco's without any pain, but I can't walk without my shopping trolley at all, um, you know, because it comes on after a second. So it's always been, a, as you said, a light bulb, a light bulb moment for me as well. So yeah. that brings on quite nicely then to the to the causes, you know, what, what causes this? Yeah, it's a tricky one um, because it's not, it's not simple. Um, so clearly some degree of narrowing um, our nerve root contact is required or at least on some level relevant to these kind of symptoms. Um, but, but I don't think that we should be using tunnel narrowing as a diagnostic thing into itself. So if you think about things like diabetes, um, you know, there's, there's kind of signature blood tests that into themselves kind of just could almost confirm a diagnosis of, of this. But what we know is about three quarters of people over the age of 40 are expected to have some degree of moderate spinal tunnel narrowing. So, so it's, you know, we can't be just looking at scans without the individual's account of problems and saying, this is what you have, because then we're just, uh, we're just blaming tissues into themselves. Instead, it's probably more to do with how the nerve roots themselves are faring, the health of the nerve roots and the environment that they're in. I had a, quite an interesting conversation on Twitter recently um, about things like the influence of the immune system on nerve root health, genetics, um, that kind of boiling frog analogy that David Poulter uses where it's kind of, uh, some nerve roots are quite happy in a tighter environment and they don't get unhappy um, whilst they might have narrowing on the scan. Why you'd be doing a scan for someone without the problem, I'm not too sure. But that's what the, the research tells us, is that uh, narrowing, severe narrowing, is actually fairly common uh, over the age of 40 to 50 years of age. So um, it, it's clearly not just about this kind of, you've got the narrowing, therefore you'll have a problem. Uh, instead, you know, we can talk about that, but, I also think as well, additional things, there isn't much data to support this, but your general health, activity levels, sleep, stress, weight management, um, 
the good news though for patients just to kind of say that if you have these kinds of symptoms you know you're not damaging your body when you feel pain okay and we can may, maybe kind of touch on this with, with treatment but but it, it kind of gives us an answer of some of the treatment strategies that we might develop if we if if we kind of recognize that nerves are pretty hardy things even when they're sore mm. I know that Dave's, Dave really wants to jump in with a question, but I've got one just before he does. The, um, so I think that's a really important message to kind of circle back to is that these, the tunnel narrowing, so that narrowing of the spinal cord, you know, which is called on scan spinal stenosis, is firstly very common. You know, lots of people will have this. And that isn't really the problem that we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about that being a problem. And just because the scan says that you have narrowing of your spinal canal, doesn't mean you're going to have pain and, and leg pain and all the symptoms which, you, which you've described because those changes yeah. on scans are normal. But then something else triggers this, at, you know, as you said, so many factors can trigger this to then cause that irritation to the nerve roots alongside this. And then people can then end up with symptoms. Mm. Absolutely. Perfect. Good. Just to be clear. I, I was going to say the same, mate. Yeah, that, that shows the difference between uh, the lumbar spinal stenosis the aggravating um a condition and the incidental finding on a on a report it, it sort of shows you that that um uh bifurcation that you talked about in your intro adam yeah i, I think the term is probably incorrect mm. I, I think the i think the clinical term putting the focus on the narrowing into itself i think it's probably a fat a misnomer. As, as someone would say, I think the the more technical term we don't need to get into this is root claudication, which refers more to the symptomology, like sciatica does. You know, if if we we can diagnose someone with sciatica, um, we don't need to know why the nerves are sore at this point because it's not relevant to management, but mm. we can hypothesise that there is some level of nerve irritation, and that's so root claudication. Um, or uh, the neurogenic claudication, but I don't tend to use that term. Um, it's probably more precise, more useful, uh, and it's reflecting a, a, an actual problem that someone has rather than just uh, um, an observation on the scan. Adam, you mentioned that uh, a possible difference between someone with uh, incidental, so just background lumbar spinal stenosis, so uh, a narrowing of their spinal um, uh, tunnel as 75% of the population has, uh, and the difference between them and someone with that, that spinal stenosis pain, that, that root claudication pain, could be as simple as lifestyle factors mm. to go alongside it. So both have a narrowing, um, uh, it yeah. could be as, mm. as easy as that. So you mentioned weight management, uh, sleep, stress, well-being. Yeah. I don't think we have the data to support mm. that quite yet. Um, and the data for this problem is very early days. I think that a lot of the kind of neuroimmune, the biology of this is yet to be discovered uh, or properly investigated. So so these are just things that I feel generally probably will be borne out in time uh, and that we can be a little bit more uh, certain that if they focus on this, uh, that it will be helpful. But I just think generally, if it's good for your general health, it's it's probably going to be good for your yeah. Like specific mm. health, you know, it can only be helpful. Sense. It's definitely not going to be a bad thing, is it? <laughs> yeah, not no. a terrible side effect. Um, so, who, what, what population tends to get this um, lumbar spinal stenosis? Then, who are we looking at? 
which is probably more common than people think. 11% of the general population are thought to present with these symptoms. 11%. Okay. Uh, But if you asked a person on the street, have you heard of lumbar spinal stenosis uh, compared to, let's say, sciatica, which is probably a misunderstood problem into itself, uh, they'd probably give you a funny face, wouldn't they? They'd probably screw up the face and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so, so yeah, so it, I, I think it's, it is a common problem, but it, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's under, it's underappreciated in terms of prevalence. It's quite common. Um, if we're talking age related, uh, under the age of 50, the, I think the average age is like 65. Um, it's not a sign though. I think it's really important to say this. It's not a sign of the body wearing out. A lot of these changes, if if compression or tunnel narrowing uh, in the central canal, it can be the canals as they coming out as well. But generally, the central tunnel, uh, it's technical terms, the canal. Um, if that's a factor um, and that's compressing the nerve root, then clearly there is a relationship more in older people uh, than in younger people. So you don't tend to see... This, there are some exceptions, and we can maybe talk to, about that. Um, but in terms of this phenotype, uh, it's generally seen in middle and older older population. So uh, average age, 65. So that brings us on to uh, the, you know, the, the golden question, which I know we've done an entire podcast on with you actually before, <laughs> which is a, yeah. a, around, the t- around the topic of scanning. And now this mm. is, so, you know, Let's, let's use a hypothetical. Someone's coming to see you. They have these symptoms. They're, you know, they have a clear-cut case of, of, of what you think is lumbar spinal stenosis. When do you scan them? When do you not scan them? Do you need a scan to confirm this, or do you just go off their, their presentation and you know, you know, the fact that you, you can be pretty confident it's not anything else? So the short answer is no. <laughs> you, you don't need a scan to diagnose this and I, I stand by that clinically as well in terms of guidelines and what have you um, in order to do that justice I would generally have your listeners check out our our session on MRI scans it goes into much more detail there similar to sciatica when scans are useful uh, and I'm not completely against scanning Uh, It's just when I feel it's got some use for the patient or for us. Uh, It's when we're discussing surgical planning. Okay. Treatment options. This is a problem that some people, surgical routes might might be um, an option. So at the very beginning of the consultation, um, you know, we'll be maybe discussing uh, a stepped approach to management or what their preferences might be, uh, what they tried before, what we might get into. Um, but but it is something that for surgical planning, it's not something that you would recommend injections for generally because it's not advisable to try and squeeze a needle <laughs> into the central canal. Uh, that would be probably um, very dangerous to do. Inadvisable. Yeah. Inadvisable, yes. But you you do hear about injections. That's probably more foraminal root irritation yeah. as the nerves are coming out. But generally, for central tunnel stenosis, uh, symptoms in both legs, it, it's probably not that advisable. I, I rarely refer patients with these kind of more typical symptoms for stuff like mm. that. So imaging, 
uh, for serious pathology, um, maybe in a younger person, if they have some kind of neurological decline, um, or if, if if there is kind of some sense that we might want to sit them with a surgeon. Mm-hmm. So we want we want to have a surgical target, and then we might want to sit them with a surgeon so they're they're on some level on on the same page. If they don't ever want to consider surgery, um, why would I work them up to see a surgeon? Yeah, I so do it's certainly that. not a standard then. That makes sense. Not standard at all. No. So then, what I can I can picture people asking and picture people in our Facebook group kind of asking is, is how do you know then? How, you know, how can you be confident that this is that and there's not something else? And, and could you, I knew that yeah, it's probably a question, you could just get a scan anyway to be safe. Yeah, so the scan's only going to be relevant based on your, your presentation anyway. So on its own, it, it it's not meaningless, but it has to be made sense on by someone who understands the implications of these things. Um, and that is born out of how your problem's presenting, um, our understanding together of that problem, uh, and then a dollop of clinical reasoning. So so I'd, I would you know talk patients through that process i i don't keep that to myself i kind of say look this is what we're testing for this this is what your symptoms are suggestive of uh and hopefully this booklet will uh and better good information out there for people and patients generally will enhance conversations that people have will increase the confidence that people put in clinicians that they're using good reasoning at the end of the day like we're trained not for fancy (laughs) <laughs> fancy techniques where we should be praised for good clinical reasoning, for good communication and good recognition of certain constellations of problems. You know, when there is a serious or specific problem that like this, then then we can use that label. We can talk about the tissues. I have no problem doing that. So, so I'd, I would talk a patient through all of the steps um, we have good data on natural histories and prognosis. There's some really good papers for clinicians to look at. So trust your clinician. Is is what we're very answer. good at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes makes total sense. And that's our, our, our yeah. We've said this numerous times before, and that's what we love to stress on this podcast is that any MSK therapist, what they are very very good at is working out when something is serious and when something is not serious you know a huge part of our training in our exams is around that and you know they wouldn't let us graduate unless we could tell the difference between something serious and not serious or when you need to be referred and when you when you need to be treated and when you need to be you know kept in house or referred elsewhere that is the uh, the biggest part of our of our job really isn't it you know when uh, when someone yeah. walks through the door but ask questions you know, there's nothing wrong with quizzing your clinician mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with a second opinion. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, these things don't have to be. They don't have to be exactly what we expect them to be. Like I can come away from a consultation feeling it, it didn't meet my expectation, but but if it was delivered in a way that is, uh, you know, that is accurate and helpful and honest, um, then then hopefully that should stick still. Hmm. Um. Just uh, before that, 
you mentioned, Adam, uh, some alternative things that we, we could be looking for. So an MRI may be appropriate or further investigation may be appropriate if there are some possible alternate causes to your pain. Specifically, leg pain is one you've mentioned quite a bit. Um, can you delve into that a little bit more for yeah. us? That's a bit of a long list, isn't it? Um, so, so similar to, to the uh, session on scans, there's a, an episode with Luke Murray uh, that I'd recommend that you listen to have a look at on differential reasons for just what we call back-related leg pain. So problems that seemingly are related to the lower back but manifest in the legs, this being one of them, sciatica being another. Um, there is also a differential vascular stenosis that your health professional can assess for. Uh, I'm not so sure how much you want me to, to go into that, but it does, it, it is exertionally induced. Um, usually patients will say um, that the pain is very um, precise. It comes on, it goes off very quickly, almost too quick for something like stenosis they wouldn't usually be a positional component as well so bending the back wouldn't usually take your pain off and something like cycling would usually um not take your pain off either um so that is something that as a clinician we we're often very uh, clear to be considering it's always a side differential uh, there are some special tests that that can be run very simple tests as long as you kind of know how to use them uh the like using a pressure cuff uh and looking at your pulses a doppler test and, and all those types of things that that are useful if your clinician feels comfortable equally gp some gps feel comfortable to do that um beyond that it might be problems that are just you know your pain in your calf is your calf surely not. <laughs> so it might be that we need to imagine imagine that it sounds ridiculous so some masquerading problems may not be related to the back mm. at all mm. you know so um but and you can't have they, two just to be just to throw a spanner in the works you can have two of, things of going on as well it's a, yeah. <laughs> which is very much the the norm it would seem in complicated mm. cases Oh, very much so, and especially in your role, when if you see a lot more of the advanced cases, then you'll probably see a, you know, a lot of challenging things as well. So it's a, that's your, your job, I guess. Yeah. So I had a patient in not so long ago who had uh, persistent foot pain, um, and it, it was always considered to be ridiculous pain, but the pain was worse putting shoes on, <laughs> and it was worse when she was, <laughs> uh, you know, poking around a foot, and I thought perhaps it's your foot. Um, and uh, so we move them on to podiatry. Mm. So, so, so yes. Yeah, so sometimes, if it, it doesn't always, you know, we've just got to be open to the notion that it could be some other things. Uh, but if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, uh, it probably is a duck. Yeah, and he said a lot of these these differential problems, these different things which mimic it, have very similar patterns, and you and that's our job is to recognise those patterns. As he said, that vascular yeah. component, you know, it, it, it it's less likely to be positional, not going to be relieved or aggravated by specific positions, which you know this neurogenic or lumbar spinal stenosis related problem will be. And then, as he said, calf issues or foot issues, it might hurt when you're pressing the foot. You know, this isn't going to give you actual foot pain when you're pressing it. So that you know, those are the patterns which you know we look for as clinicians to to assess when patient comes into the door so then let's go on to management and kind of treatment of 
of lumbar spinal stenosis. And I don't know if you want to talk about those separately in terms of management, yeah, management mm. and treatment or... So, so in the booklet, I've tried to kind of separate these things out a little bit. So there's things that people can just be learning and doing every day and a day-to-day perspective here and now, um, but they may be kind of a longer form piece in terms of treatment as well. So we'll okay, so frame... Let's do management first then. Yeah, we'll do the management, the day-to-day perspective. So, um, so in terms of walking, um, you know, walking with leg pain is not harmful. You know, that we've we've got a good body of evidence with vascular stenosis, which I did talk about as a separate problem, but there are some com- comparable natures to some of those things. There's a suggestion that there might be a vascular component to the health of the nerve roots, for instance. So walking with a degree of leg pain, if it's tolerable, it's more than okay to continue. Um, Equally, taking small breaks is fine. If you need to stop, have a rest, then go again. Equally, that is fine to maybe manage manage the pain. Bending the back for therapeutic effect is actually something that we should be encouraging. So um, you're stopping at the bench, you know, reach your hands towards your feet, get a stretch through your back. We know this anyway. Bending is not inherently bad for backs. Um, and and this is actually one of the cases where people tell us, you know, it actually really helps. Um, so let, let's not be telling patients off for, uh, for doing that. We should lean into that in actual fact. It's not going to stiffen you up. It's going to help you day to day. So I'm a big advocate of, of, of kind of getting the back bending. Um, but equally, like I said earlier, um, advice on maybe weight management services, maybe looking at sleep, looking at um, other forms of general exercise that, that you might want to adopt, uh, cycling, um, you know, swimming, things that don't inherently um, give you too much symptom burden. It might be something that you might want to consider. And this could be just a conversation that we're having. Okay, I've got an idea. I've read the booklet. I'll make some changes myself. Not everyone wants to enter into some kind of intensive physiotherapy bout. And and we should give patients that option. Mm. And then treatment. That's, that's kind of the, the, the next bit. If we separate kind of, I mean, yeah. this is kind of treatment as well. If you're giving someone that advice, that could technically come under. Yeah, the I, I, yeah, I, but, yeah. yeah, I struggle with that notion, not just putting it all in one, you know, yeah. category. So I'll break the treatment up into two parts. So exercise as therapy um, or as a therapy and then surgical decompression. It's the other side, the scary side. Uh, it's really important to say for most people, um, spinal stenosis is lumbar spinal stenosis is a long-term health problem. Okay, we should be honest with that. It's not a broken bone. There isn't a quick fix. Um, we may be looking at people's general function, um, pain reduction, quality of life. Um, so those things should be the focus, I think. This notion that we can just turn the light off and 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 uh, and everything will be fine uh, is probably unrealistic. So I think we should focus on um, quality of life, function, how far you can walk currently, how much of a burden is this problem, and actually there's some good research not yet published. By, it's called the BOOST trial, which specifically is looking at 
uh, exercise programs. And I think there's some good data to show that exercise uh, is, is a good first line treatment. So those are the two options. Uh, exercise therapy, which is the next point. Um, so like I said, the boost trial just look to be effective. What I think is really important is we're not trying to change the tunnel narrowing. I get this often in the clinic. How is this going to change this narrowing in my spine? That was my next question, so I'm glad you, glad you took that. <laughs> That's not the, the, a really important message for everyone is, is that we might influence the biology, how things feel, the inflammation around the nerve roots, your walking distance, but we do not need to change what you look like on a scan. That's not the point of exercise. We're not trying to mold and change the anatomy. We're trying to help things feel better and improve the condition. So then one thing before we move on to the next, a bit, a bit about the surgery, surgical interventions. The, uh, if using exercise as therapy, a lot of people will be quite scared of the pain and mm. you know, scared of walking and scared of moving because it hurts. And that's understandable. And I know you mentioned before that it's important to recognize that you're not causing any damage when it's hurting. You know, you're not, you're not breaking anything. Nothing is nothing, you know, it, it's easy to say it's just pain, but you know, it's only pain that's happening. Is it okay to push through that pain when you're walking? You know, if someone says to you, I get pain after a hundred meters, mm. you know, should I push on and go to 150 or should I stop and do some exercises and then carry on, you know, or, or am I, I have to push on. What's your advice around that? Or should you always stop? So it all comes down to tolerability. So it's not that useful to put numbers on these things. I've found mm. um, your five out of 10, Rob, might be different to my five out of 10. I think if the pain remains tolerable, acceptable, then then it's okay to continue. Um, if, if there reaches a point that it's not tolerable, it's not acceptable, then then stop. Um, or revise that a little bit of trial and error a little bit of experimentation to find what your baseline level is working with a coach working with a physiotherapist is a good way to explore that in a, in a safe environment um, things like cycling programs uh, are, are quite well known to not necessarily bring on the same level of pain um, as walking might do. So if your pain is particularly um, aggravating with the walking, obviously, then we might just tail that back and um, put that in the management camp and then focus on a, a cycling program uh, initially and build you up that way. So it's it's fairly easy if you're open-minded to, to find that baseline level and find what works for you and and we'll kind of might take a couple of sessions with a clinician uh to figure that out and get to know each other yeah. but and there's no hard and fast rules there and that cycling you said is, is i'm guessing that's really beneficial as well because you're leaning forward in a lot of the yeah. cases so mm. it's similar to that shopping trolley analogy so a lot of patients will find that they can cycle and it doesn't bring on their leg pain anywhere near as fast as it does when you're walking so you can do 15 minutes you know in front of the television watching watching TV whilst you're cycling, whereas you can't walk for two minutes. So you're getting that cardiovascular exercise and you're getting the muscular exercise and you're getting all the benefits of exercise, but with a lot less pain. Well, so you're bringing all the blood to the nerves horrible. as well. Yeah, I, I think that they, 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 if there is a vascular component to this, 
um, if we're bringing blood supply to to the nerve roots through aerobic exercise, it makes complete sense that there is some plausibility in that mechanism. Uh, and, and maybe that's what's happening is they do, we're just kind of um, creating new blood supplies and and, uh, and and nourishing the nerve roots and yeah. Mm. Well, that's creating our own therapy. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to give it an ear, won't we? Yeah, a trademark. What, what other ones? How can we sell it? Oh, dear me. Yeah. <laughs> the Back Pain Podcast, TM, yeah. <laughs> the Back Pain Method. The Back Pain Podcast yeah. Method, TM. Yeah. That's I like that. It. Give it a wiggle and it might feel better, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, well, look, we, we've, um, we've talked about the... Uh, the management side of things and the exercise as therapy. Can we talk a bit about the surgical side of things? So the, yep. the bigger end of the wedge. Mm. So, uh, so in the clinic, so, um, I work in a, a triage clinic. So, um, patients are referred to me from the GP. And so I'm often the first individual with some kind of sense of, um, you know, kind of having these contacts and thinking about big picture treatment plans. So, Surgery is often reserved for those with high degrees of disability, um, those or kind of high symptom burden, um, those with some degree of neurological decline that we can assess in the clinic fa fairly easy, but also based on you know their description of numbness, weakness in the leg that, that might give us an idea of um, how healthy their nerves are. Um, and also patients potentially have been through um, maybe eight, 12 weeks of good quality physiotherapy, rehab, exercise therapy. So um, so some patients will move them on early or, or will maybe want to have a little look at the health of the nerves on the scan. Um, other patients will, will belay to uh, a period of physiotherapy, but, but also we'll need to talk about preference, won't we? So preference is a part of this. It's an elective procedure at the end of the day. Um, surgery of this kind is rarely essential. You know, it's rarely a mandated thing. And, and uh, when it comes to the science, it's a little bit inconclusive. We don't fully understand who benefits and who doesn't benefit. So some really good studies going on currently. Um, and we need to present that in a palatable way to, to patients that actually this is an option. Um, it's what we call a laminectomy, which is a removal of a part of bone uh, at the back of the spinal column to reduce the pressure on the nerve roots to decompress the nerve roots so a laminectomy laminectomy refers to the lamina which is a kind of window of bone at the back of the bones and in, in, in the spine um, so that's generally the procedure to to remove the the compression or the squeeze on the nerve roots but like i said it, it's usually for leg pain uh, wouldn't usually advocate um, that that it would do a great deal for their back, but it, it it's an option, and we do, I do occasionally refer patients to for surgical opinions um, mm. once we've kind of done the workup, but it's a bit inconclusive. Mm. So we're we're taking away a bit of tunnel wall there to yeah. enable more space within within the tunnel. 
Yeah, that's a, the easiest way. In the booklet, we explain it that way. There may be some plus minus procedures <laughs> that the surgeon might advocate, uh, like a discectomy or something like that. But uh, generally speaking, it's the the ligament and the bone uh, towards the kind of the back uh, of the spinal column that they remove. So, um, so, so yeah, laminectomy is to remove the lamina. I think on, on a previous, uh, we did an episode with uh, Rath Sundaram, who was a spinal surgeon, and he was talking about the ceiling. He was like, he's like, you're you're taking away the ceiling of the uh, of of the of the bone sometimes, or the floor, depending on which way the patient was lying. Mm. Um, and he said you're kind of yeah, lifting up the ceiling, or you're dropping away the floor a bit, and that just basically make, making a bit more space. And he was talking about it in terms of uh, other procedures that are available, but uh, um, not specifically spinal stenosis. But yeah, he used that kind of you know, obviously said to a patient, when you're lying on your tummy, it's the ceiling, and when you're lying on your back, it's the floor. And he kind of worked it around that way, and it's uh, it, it made sense uh, to kind of a, a lot of people. Yeah, we would use in the clinic. You, we would use a model to, to mm, describe yeah. the, what, what we would be doing. But, but I think the focus should be on the nerve roots themselves, which yeah. why it makes exercise therapy a plausible, um, valid treatment, you know. Yeah. And always should be, uh, you know, attempted first in, in the vast majority of cases outside of, you know, suspected pathology and other things. But uh, yeah. So then the, the, the golden question is I'm not sure of the evidence here. This is a question for you in terms of the prognosis. You know, most people who who kind of have this, you know, what is their long-term prognosis? Is this something which people will generally always have pain with? I know you said you, we're never going to change that 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 mm. tunnel, um, but do most people improve their function, decrease their pain? Yeah. So in in the biggest study that's been performed, they looked at ten years worth of longitudinal data. Um, which is the biggest study of its kind uh, in this particular, you might call it a degenerative problem, which I don't think is that fair of a word, but but anyway. Um, so in that study, uh, 60% of patients um, either stayed the same over time or, or, or improved. Uh, this is a problem that can relapse and remit. So people like like back pain might have some periods of worsening and bettering, but the trend over time might be that the problem is about the same and they can physically do the same things um, that they usually would do. In other studies, that's shown to be up to 70%, um, but, but the, the kind of longer study seemed to suggest that. So it is a problem that it doesn't inherently it's not it's quite a stable problem so it you know it may be that it can be improved upon but if we did nothing with it um most patients um do not get worse um for that smaller group who do um then then they might perhaps be the people who we have these further conversations if they're non-responsive or they have a high symptom burden that we might discuss it with a, a surgeon beyond the kind of MRI workup. But but I think it's really important to say that this is a long-term problem, but largely it is a problem that that can stabilise and improve in, in the vast majority of people. So I think that's a... Sorry, Dave, you carry on. I say that, that what a great way to end it. That even if you've ticked all the boxes, as it were, that, that Adam's gone through, you've uh, agreed or you recognise a lot of the symptoms that we've talked about today. 
that doesn't mean that that final point that you know the the end is not necessarily surgery surgical uh, intervention is an option but it is not the definitive end of that goal uh, or of that pathway there are other routes or, or other ways to take this yeah i think that um I was chatting to a colleague called Rob, um, uh, name dropped him there. He's in, he's in the booklet. Um, if, if you, if we get to know people and we can come back to something and we can review it again and we can monitor it, maybe use a good outcome measure. Uh, the MSK HQ, for instance, gives you a value that uh, talks about quality of life, function, symptom burden. We could then review that again in six months time and it is as that value changed you know uh, where you with the problem currently so rather than seeing these as discrete um consultations maybe we can look at this problem over a longer period of time and therefore have better conversations about you know look this problem is is it seems to be getting a little worse or over time um you know should we explore more of this support um so not, not kind of have this door closing and opening kind of um culture that, that, that we currently do wonderful adam thank you so much for that so for the this booklet you know obviously a lot of work goes into these 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 materials can you tell us a bit about you know how you made this did you work with other people uh, where can people find it yeah, so it's uh, it's on our website, South Tees Back Pain. Uh, if you put that into Google, um, it's the first link, the Triage and Tree Back Pain Service. But hopefully you can put that on the show notes, uh, Rob. Thank you, Philippe. Yeah. Um, this is one of an, a collection of patient resources that we've developed. We have one on sciatica, one on back pain. We've got a f- two further projects to go, so it's not completely finished. So you might want to check those things out. Uh, it might be something that's offered to you after a consultation, or it might be something that you can kind of go and seek out yourself if, if you think you, you might have this problem and, and develop better conversations with your GP, mm. clinician, physiotherapist, uh, chiropractor. Um, <clears throat> I've had a number of contributors over the last few years on, on, on these things. This one in particular, Anina Schmidt, who is an absolute renowned researcher in entrapment neuropathy, absolute uh superstar actually so very happy to have her name on the on the booklet and then rob goldsmith is a specialist down in wales um who has an interest in in um nerve related problems as well so they they helped me put this together uh tom jesson has helped me with previous iterations as well she he's just had a baby so i left him alone this time around um and then just my colleagues uh, the trust has been amazing. The comms team, Emerson UK, which is the the marketing team who who helped me produce it this time around. Um, uh, South Tees NHS. Uh, in terms of it, this has took me about all in all about six months. If I condense the time down from first draft to create it, so there's a lot of work that goes into it. But but this is my day job, so it's just kind of encapsulating a lot of my thoughts and thinking on the problem anyway. And if this can help patients make better decisions, improve their life, um, then it, then it's done its job. Yeah, and I think people you uh, uh, underestimate how hard it is to get a very complex topic with a lot of nuances and a lot of caveats and a lot of 
ifs, buts and maybes into some really clear, concise information to take away to give a you know, good evidence-based you know, overview of, as I said, what is a very complex topic. So good job, mate, one of that. Yeah, I think one thing to say on that, Rob, this is all scientific. You know, that this mm-hmm. is sensible, honest, scientific information. So, I, you know, we, we did a lot of research to make sure that, you know, the stats and statistics are all accurate and that we've, like you said, we've got that nuanced uh, blend of accurate information, but not scary information, not technical information, but it is very much evidence-based information. Yeah, brilliant. And like I said, we will link to this in the in, in the show notes below, and we'll also link you. Adam, where can people go to find out more about you? Are you arguing on Twitter like the rest of us? Are you arguing on Instagram? Always, you always. On Facebook? Yeah, <laughs> so I'm on Twitter mainly, Adam Dobson123. I think it, it is. Um, and then that's the main place to find me. Um, and then our website, South Tees Back Pain, into Google is where a lot of these kind of documents live in terms of sharing with, with patients. So th- those are the two main places to find me, I would say. Yeah, you're, you are Adam Dobson123. I just double checked. So that's yeah. at Adam Dobson123 on Twitter. Yeah. There's 122 other Adam Dobsons out there. That's incredible. Hundred there before you, eh? <laughs> what on Twitter? Yeah, you have to have one hundred and twenty-three. Oh, blimey! I didn't get that one. Uh, God, I wasn't very quick there, was I? <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I wonder <laughs> they were all gone, weren't they? They were all gone when I. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, already taken. Damn it. Already taken. <laughs> we'll have to reconnect. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Send them all a message. Hello, yeah. James. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it's taking a turn. Um, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank this you, evening. Um, We really will share that. It's such a fantastic and really concise uh, resource for anyone to check out. So, Lovely. guys, do uh, go and follow that link and um, uh, check it out. It's much better than trawling through Google and trying to make sense of it all yourself. Lovely. Thank you. Thanks, chaps. So, Adam, thank you so much. Rob, as always, thank you for steering this. No worries. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the Backbend Podcast. Over and out, guys.